do there. So we appreciate that. That is, by the way, our primary text this morning, and we will be going through it verse by verse. And that's a joke. <coughs> so you can, you can exhale. We are in the final Sunday, for those of you who have not been with us, of a four-part series, uh, as you can see, on big Christianity, a big-picture Christianity. Why are we here? Uh, this today, in, in fact, we're going to be looking at part four, living day-to-day with self-giving love. I've used this overarching illustration with every sermon, um, so I'll use it again today. Those of you who have, have been here for three weeks, you, you kind of know it by now, but if you've ever put together a big puzzle, a big thousand or two thousand piece puzzle or more, some people, I mean, they're even five thousand pieces, probably even more than that, I don't even know, but, but the key thing the key thing that we need to put that puzzle together is the box top because it tells us what that puzzle is going to look like when we get done. Otherwise, it's, it's almost impossible with that many pieces, many of them that look alike and are shaped alike and all those things. It's almost impossible to put that puzzle together. And the church is kind of like that in how we look at Scripture. Every Each tradition and each even at the denominational level, and sometimes each at a, at a local church level, has a different aspect of Christianity that they, they tend to emphasize. And so it's with, the, with going back to the puzzle, it's like finding all the pieces of this color and that color, you know, maybe the edge pieces that have a straight edge. And, and, and so we, we group those together and kind of spread it out all over the table. But we don't really have anything good to connect all those things together with. And that's why we need a big picture of Christianity. And so that's what I have attempted to do here in this series. Now, I'm just going to give away the main point here because I don't want you to be in suspense, those of you who haven't been with us. Um, But the big picture here is, the, the main point is we are here, that is us human beings, and specifically now us Christians, We are here to image or to display the self-giving love of God more than anything else. And so when you look at that puzzle and you see all these pieces, these sections that have been put together, but they don't quite make a coherent whole, I would submit to you this morning that what, what joins these pieces of the puzzle together, what connects them together, is the self-giving love of God and the fact that we are made designed and made by our creator to image that in the lives that we live, especially corporately. Again, you have to have two people to love, right? This is is mainly uh, or almost totally with regard to relationships. The first week, we looked at what is God like, and we looked at various Old Testament passages, various New Testament passages, the main New Testament passages that God is love, that at the very essence of God's being, when you look at the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they have been pouring themselves into each other for all of eternity. That is the, that is when the, the, the essence of God is his love. And again, we have been created, as we found in Genesis 1.26, where the triune God says, let us make God in our image. What is it that we should be most reflecting is his self-giving love. Then in week two, we looked at this love from the perspective of what, what what would it be like if it became or came in the form of a human being. 
And we get that, obviously, in Jesus. And so we looked at Philippians 2, the Christ hymn passage there, that talks about Jesus pouring himself out, laying aside the, the, the privilege and the glory of heaven, and laying it aside so that he could put our interest ahead of his own. And, and the key passage there for us, and, and we see this, this is, this is the love of God in action. And it's what we are called to do. And, and Paul describes it very well in, in uh, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but to the, each of you to the interest of others. That is, that is the definition of self-giving love. And when, when self-giving love is put in action, we are submitting. That is, in fact, the definition, if you will, of submitting. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Then last week in, in uh, the, uh, week three, we looked at how do we, how do we become self-giving. And we looked at Paul's prayer at the end of the same letter to the Ephesians. We looked at one of his prayers at the end of chapter 3, where Paul tells us that, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know, that is experience this love that surpasses knowledge. We know about it, but we go de- as we go deeper into it, we begin to know it experientially. We experience his love. And in the, in the process, a lifelong process of doing that, we beca- become transformed. We become people who are more and more able to love with this same kind of love, this self-giving love. Today, I want, again, I want to look at how do we live day to day with this self-giving love. And to do that, we're going to look at the passage that Byron read earlier. Um, but before we do that, let me just speak real quickly to the, to the passages, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament passage. Um, Micah 6.8, we've all heard this, probably even memorized it. What does the Lord require of you? What, is, what does it truly mean to be a good person? Uh, my, uh, excuse me, Micah writes, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Do mercy. That's, that's the, that word that we've talked a lot about, at least when, when I preach, that Old Testament concept of hesed. Hesed, that self-giving love of God. We, when we walk humbly with God, we are able to love with self-giving love, and we care about injustice. It's not the focus of everything we do, but it's part of what we, we do in love. And these are known as the, pre, the, the, the primary forms of love. Jesus even repeated it in the, in the gospel passage that Byron read um, when he was calling out the Pharisees. This was a woe on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that they were disregarding the main things of Scripture. They were, in effect, majoring on the minors and minoring on the major. They were, they were concerned with things like cumin and dill and, and all these little idiosyncrasies of, of their interpretation of the Scripture, and yet they were, they were neglecting the biggest, most important aspects of what God has called us to. All this comes out of the law of love, the Old Testament, that, that's boiled down to the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus even further told us in, in three different passages in each of the, in Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the great commandment, to love your God and to love your neighbor. 
Again, the core of that is self-giving love. <clears throat> Again, the main unifying point of Scripture, though, uh, is that, that we are called, we are created and called to display the self-giving love of God. This morning, we, again, want to dig into that, into these, what we call the house codes. It was called uh, in Ephesians, or not in Ephesians, but it's, it's what it's known as the house codes. The most fundamental, basic relationships that we do day in and day out are found in that second half of, of, of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6. We're not going to go exhaustively through there, but we are going to hit the highlights this morning. Now, keep in mind, as, as, this, as, as we transitioned out of chapter 3, the part that we looked at last week, that this prayer that Paul prays that we would know God's love, experience God loves, God's love, and be transformed by his love is what transitions us into this section, uh, verses, or chapters 4 through 6. Byron didn't read this, but verse 1 of chapter 4, immediately following the prayer, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, to live a life worthy of this calling that you have received. This calling that we received, this gospel calling, is to love like God loves. And that's, he, again, he's going, to, he's going to break this down for us as he goes through it. Just to repeat quickly another verse that Byron read in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly, what? Dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's very reminiscent of what we read about Jesus in Philippians 2, that he gave himself for us. He laid aside the privilege, the splendor, the glory, all the rights of heaven. He laid it aside on our behalf. Then he tells us, Paul does in in chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Again, echoing that that prayer at the end of chapter 3, that we we are filled and empowered by the Spirit as we grasp more deeply this love of Christ. And then this is the overarching verse for this section. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 21. Um, and it's, again, everything that follows, even everything that's before this. He's talking in a corporate sense, how we as Christians relate to each other in general in ch- chapter 4, verses 1 through this section of chapter 5. But in, in chapter or verse 21 of chapter 5, he begins to transition to these house codes. And how does he, he, he bridges these two sections together? He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, submit to one another. Every single one of us as believers are called to submit to each other in some way or form. Grammatically, this this verse is tied to the previous section, the corporate section where he's talking to the the church in general. But it also transitions us to the, the, the transitions the reader, that is us, to the following section and basically encapsulates these house codes, okay? So again, what is it that encapsulates us? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the key to understanding this section. And each of these relationships we're going to look at here in just a moment. 
Again, this introduces these house codes. Uh, again, primarily, again, it's dealing with Christian relationships within the home. This whole chapters four through six are all dealing are all directed at Christians, people who who have been redeemed. That is, the power of sin has been broken over their lives, and and the wrath of God, the penalty of sin, has been has been absorbed by Christ. They, they, we are forgiven because of what He has done for us. Now, looking at um, and well, before I jump into this, let me repeat Philippians 2, that verse I read earlier, because I want you to have this fresh in your mind as we start talking about submission. Again, Jesus shows the self-giving love of God and how he voluntarily lays down his privileges as God to become a human being and ultimately die for us. Paul, again, describes the effect in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. Again, Paul is describing here what it means to submit, the very heart of self-giving love. Three relationships that he primarily deals with, or, or three relationships, period. Husband and wife, parent and child, owner and servant. We'll get that with those second two in a, in a few minutes but mutual submission is called for in each one now before we jump into this let me let me let me just say this uh, as an aside it doesn't mention singles here um, but the same goes for singles you're called to mutually submit to to those around you as well and I say this only because oftentimes in the church today singles tend to be forgotten about we don't, they don't show up here in this passage. And so it, it's good to at least mention that uh, because it, sometimes they can be treated like second-class citizens or childless couples. Uh, we, we in the church tend to, to almost venerate marriage and family, and it's a great blessing. But we have to remember not, all, not everyone is called to marriage and family or marriage and, and parenting, I should say. So, so this is not excluding singles here. We're still included in this mutual submission. And it's interesting to note, the most prominent character in Scripture, Jesus himself was single. Paul, who is writing this very letter and wrote much of the New Testament and who was an Old Testament scholar, was single. So single people are not talked about here, but they are not second-class citizens. So, husbands, I'm going to jump on us first, okay? Because uh, we're spoken to the most in this passage, by far, all right? Verse 25 presents the main thought of Paul's introduction, instructions to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He, again, he emptied himself. He set aside his privileges, the glory and the splendor of heaven, and he valued us above himself. Paul is saying that husbands are to lead in submitting. We are to set the tone in servant leadership. Somehow we've gotten the idea erroneously that this somehow means a wife is called to obey her husband. And that is not 
what this passage is telling us. Husband and wives are equal in God's sight. They are partners. She's not a junior partner, and those husbands uh, are, are senior partners. It is a partnership, and we as husbands are called again, especially with regards to how we relate to her, to love her with self-giving love, to be a servant leader, to set the tone, to lead in that. And as, as we do that, she then in turn does the same thing. And it echoes what's going on in the Godhead. These three persons and this one being God, this, this three person to God, we see in these intratarian relationships that same thing going on except perfectly and infinitely. And we image that in our marriages. Again, the husband is responsible for setting the tone of servant leadership to put the needs of his wife and his children ahead of his own. Their interests come first. Matthew, again, she is, he, is, he is not her boss. Hear this in Matthew 20, verses 24 through 26. You know that the rulers, of the, and, and Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and they've just had this big discussion about who's going to sit on the right hand and who's going to sit on the left hand. And Jesus says, hold on, guys. You, you totally missed it. And he says this to them. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? Can you remember that one? Your servant. Servant leadership is the kind of leadership we display, see displayed all throughout Scripture. And it's what us husbands are being called to here in this passage. Servant leadership. Now, wives, here's your part. It's pretty, it's pretty short now, okay? Paul presents his instructions to the wives in verse 22. And basically the whole thing, but I'll just read 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Wives are called to carry out Philippians 2, verses 4 through 6 as well. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider your husband as more as his needs as more important than your own. And, and, and think about that. What if you had a husband and a wife who were continually thinking about the other? Would that be different? Would that maybe say something that people or people would see something in them that they don't typically see anywhere else in any other marriage? I think they would. I think they'd wonder what's going on there. I've never seen this kind of love before. I've never seen a marriage like this. But that's what we're called to. To be more concerned with the needs of our spouse than we are with our very own needs. Mutual submission between husband and wife is the key to a God-honoring marriage. The key to a God-honoring marriage. Now, what about headship? How does that fit? 
Paul says here from verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should also submit to their husbands and everything. Wives, again, follow the lead of their husbands in self-giving love. And if, if husbands aren't doing it, then the wives need to continue to do it. They need to step in the gap and do it themselves. There will be times, in fact, most times, especially early on in marriages, that neither one's doing it. But as we grow in Christ, as we grow in the knowledge of God's love for us, we become more and more able to do this as we're conformed to the likeness of Christ. Um, So there are different functions. Speaking of headship here, there are different functions within marriage um, just as there is in the Godhead. When we look at Ephesians 1, the same letter, Paul lays out what each of the three persons of the Godhead, would, how, how they have been involved in our salvation. And, and he talks about God the Father ca- calling out his church, calling a church a bride for his son, electing, choosing a bride for his son. And then he talks about what Christ has done to redeem that bride and to make her spotless and pure. And then it talks about the Holy Spirit who applies the effects of salvation to us. And so we see, even in the Godhead, we see different roles, different functions. And that is echoed in the marriage. We have different functions. And, and, the, and the husband, is, his authority derives from the fact that he is the one who is accountable to God for this servant leadership. And how that's working in his home. And how his wife are together are partnering in that enterprise. He is accountable. He's the one who has to answer to it to God himself about how he is doing that and how he is loving and discipling his children. And so that's that's where the headship comes in. But but the wife comes alongside him and they partner in this enterprise, this self-giving love. And by, by doing that, we display the image of God in a most unique way. It is a beautiful privilege for us as married couples, to be able to do that. And it is a high calling and one that we need to take very seriously. Quickly, the next relationship that Paul discusses here, the parent and child relationship. This one's pretty clear cut. Uh, verse ch- or Chapter 6, verse 1, very straightforward. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. With regard to children and parents, it's, there's no question here. Children, obey your parents. As they age, as they mature, hopefully the parents are able to give the children more and more latitude and make more and more choices on their own. But earlier on, until they they mature, uh, they need to be very, very clear about obeying their parents. Now, as as they age out of the home, as they get older and older, that these these. Roles change, just like we'll see different roles within the, within the marriage. To the point where you, when the parents get old, it's almost like these, these roles reverse. Some of you are going through that with, with aging parents, and you see what that's like. But we still see the self-giving love of the parent for his child. And we're teaching them in the process. We're showing them. We're modeling them 
for them through our marriages what self-giving love looks like day in and day out in the heat of, of life. In the good and the bad and the ugly of life. What does self-giving love look like? That's, that's what us parents are called to with regard to this passage. Uh, it says in, Paul says in verse 4, Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. We are not as parents to be a domineering or dominating of our children. We, again, if, we, if we're living with self-giving love, we will not be like that. Because if we, but if we do, we tend to exasperate our children. It makes our, our more compliant children, it makes them obey us out of, out of abject fear. Fear of what's going to happen to them if they don't. We are, we're trying to teach them to obey us out of self-giving love, not out of fear. It teaches our more strong-willed children to, it causes them to chafe against the control that we're putting them under. And again, it's not showing them self-giving love. And that's what they need to see most in how we parent them. Finally, the the third um, relationship that Paul talks about here in this house code section, uh, it's, it's that of master and slave. And again, this doesn't have a direct correlation to us. Again, if you think of a, a first century household, uh, a Roman household, you had a husband who pretty much did what he wanted to. The wife stayed home and she managed the home, she managed the household, she managed, if they had slaves, she was kind of the, 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 the person who oversaw that stuff. Um, and, and raised the children, bore the children and raised the children. They didn't even sleep in the same bedroom, a husband and wife. Wives were used to have children to bear the family name and to run the household, to manage the household. For his other sexual pleasure, he would find that, he was free to find that outside of the home. So you can see that as, as thorny as this passage, especially the submission passage is in our, our culture, this whole passage was radical for that day and age. This was unheard of. We've heard this most of our Christian lives. We, we know this, this, these two cha- chapters fairly well. But this was totally unheard of in, in that day. So we can imagine how, how this would have gone across then. But this was what the church was called to, to be radically different from the culture around it. And most radically different in how we loved with self-giving love. But it was just a cultural norm then that there were slaves. You know, as, as the centuries went on and Christianity began to, to gain more and more of a foothold and more and more of a, an influence, slowly slavery began to disappear. And it's a blight on our nation's history that we had slaves, African-American slaves in our country. But slowly that gave way to, to us recognizing truly the dignity of every human being. But again, it is what it is in this culture. It was, just a, it was just a cultural norm. And so Paul was addressing it because the house would have a lot of slaves to do the work. The more wealthy you were, the more you would have. It's estimated back then that a third of the population were slaves. And so slaves were just a normal part of everyday life. And since they were, they were basically part of the family to some degree or another, it was important that they join in this mutual self 
giving love. Again, we're assuming that these slaves have been converted. He's speaking here again to, to uh, Christians. Verse 5, chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And then he says to masters in verse 9. And masters, trust your slaves in the same way. Or excuse me, treat your slaves in the same way. Can you imagine a first century uh, household hearing this? Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. This harkens back to Philemon and Onesimus, to Paul, his friend Philemon that he would write to later about this, the run, his, his escaped slave Onesimus and how he needed to receive Onesimus back into his home as a brother. Can, can you imagine how radical this would have sounded to first century ears? But this is what self-giving love is radical in a sinful world. It's just not naturally ever going to be found. And so this is what Paul was telling them that, that they were called to. Self, mutual, self-giving love. Now, just very quickly, one side application here, and it's not exactly the same thing. But since it is talking about a work environment, we can at least have some connection here to how this this applies to us in our work life. And when I say work, I'm not just talking about paid work, although that's in particular, uh, that's a specific part of it, where we spend the best hours of our lives, the best years of our lives are given to our jobs So this needs to be brought into our discussion of what it looks like in the workplace. But it could be in volunteer work. It could could be in work around the house, uh, whatever it may be. Again, we are called in the workplace, especially if we're we're working with Christians, uh, to, to, again, put aside our best interest and, and look after the best interest of others. Now, it's harder to do that when you're with non-Christians. There, there has to be some boundaries there. But at the same time, those, those non-Christian workers should see a difference in how you approach your job. Your clients, your customers, your, your employees, the people who work for you or the people you work for. How can you, and we need to think this through, how can we, what are the ways in which we can have their best interest at heart? How can they see the self-living God in how we approach our work? That's in essence what Paul is calling the slaves here who were the workers of that day. And so it does have direct application in that sense. So keep that in mind as well. Final point on this. The home, the household, is the training ground for mutual self-giving love. It's the proving ground for mutual self-giving love. Think about your home. Are you, are you trying to make any good first impressions there? Are you trying to impress anyone, period? Probably not, because they know you too well, right? The masks have long since been taken off. Our wives, as, as husbands, they know us better than we know ourselves sometimes. They see the ugly parts of our lives ugly parts of our house, our hearts. Same with, with, with husbands and, and seeing their wives. 
we are who we are. We're, we're our most ourselves at home. And if we can love with genuine self-giving love in our homes, we can be sure God is at work in our lives to transform us. And if, it, if we can love like that there, we can take that love out into the world. This is where we learn it. This is where we learn to image God. Children learn it by watching their mother and father. Wives learn it from watching the servant leadership of their husbands, or they should, and vice versa. This is what we are called to in self, mutual self-giving love. Again, earlier I talked about the puzzle. If you look at the different denominations, the different traditions, uh, even the Reformed Church that we're a part of, charismatic churches, mainline churches, I'm sure it's even true if you, if you were to analyze the Orthodox and the, the Catholic churches and, and, and the Protestant church and lay them, put them together. There seems to be one thing we do have in common. Not just Jesus, obviously we have that. And we have scriptures. And the, and the creeds. There are things we do have a lot in common, actually. But another, a negative that we have in common is we always think we have the corner on the truth. Our way is the best way. And we look pridefully oftentimes down our noses at our brothers and sisters from these other traditions. Now, does is that, is that show self-giving love? No. What does that show? It shows our ugly pride that I'm better than you. We're better than you guys. What if we all began to grasp in our diversity, even, we all bring something to the table, or most of us do. Most Christian, these groups that I'm talking about, bring something valid to the table that the rest of us need to see. What if instead of looking at each other in prideful ways, we looked at, it, at each other with self-giving love? Maybe then Jesus' prayer in John 16, that the church would be one. Maybe the world would begin to see that. Again, we are designed and created by the self-giving God to image him in that self-giving love. Let's pray.